The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Serenity now, dear people of the internet. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And while it's nothing new to have ex-military men coming out of the woodwork to talk about UFOs and telling amazing tales of the things they've seen on the inside, from bodies to battles at underground bases, these events still make for noteworthy milestones on the road to the big reveal, if we ever get there. And what is there, exactly? Should we expect to be greeted by some galactic federation of light or initiated into a dark legion of deceptive demons? Maybe they're plasma beings from a dimension next door or the alien orchestrators of some cosmic Lord of the Flies experiment. Or might recent revelations have more mundane motivations, like being designed to prop up military-industrial complex budgets? Or might they be a pressure test for their technocratic takeover and narrative control? Many people think about disclosure as a single explosive event just over the horizon, but I suspect it'll happen so slowly and methodically as to almost appear boring. And we might wake up on the other side realizing we know maybe all we're ever gonna know, because perhaps these aren't answers anyone can ever definitively deliver to us in some gift-wrapped complete package. But we still keep tabs on the dripping faucet of disclosure because it's part of the job, and recently we had the one-two punch of whistleblower David Grush's claims, as well as a new Disclosure Project press conference from Stephen Greer, highlighting several highly credentialed military men talking about their own strange experiences firsthand. And when we have new chapters in the never-ending story, I make a call to the best of the best to help us assess it appropriately, and of course the king of that hill is the great Richard Dolan the military historian and UFO investigator extraordinaire. He's the author of two volumes of UFOs in the National Security State, which comprise the most detailed history on the subject I've ever found, as well as other great books like A.D. After Disclosure, The Alien Agendas, and UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, which was recently re-released in a new and expanded edition with over 60 pages of additional content. On top of his UFO work, Richard also wrote and hosted a 10-part series on the history of false flag events for Gaia TV, and currently you can find him doing the Richard Dolan Show weekly as well as providing ongoing content to his subscribers at richarddolanmembers.com. Let's get into it. The dedicated disclosure detective, technocracy tracker, and bright mind for our strange and troubled times. Richard, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Greg. That was uh, one of the most impressive introductions I've ever heard. Uh, Two <laughs> kinds. You laid it on pretty thick there, but thank you very much. That was very, <laughs> very kind of you. You got it. You know, it's hard to get people's attention these days, so we do what we can. Yeah. And I am super fortunate to have you here every so often. I really appreciate your work and time. I heard that David Grush interview and saw the latest Disclosure Project press conference and thought that together they seemed like a big enough reason to bother you about coming back. Not a bad couple of weeks to be in the UFO business, right? 
Oh, fascinating. By the way, I've always enjoyed every one of our interviews in the past, so it's nice to be back here with you. Yeah, it's interesting. The UFO, UAP now field had a lot of shocks, shocking bits of information over the last several years, of course. You know, the whole David Grush thing that came out actually over a month ago now. It's been, that was June 5th, I'm seeing in our interview. It's more than a month after that. So it's interesting. And I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, I mean, we had the Grush thing. That was first with the article in the debrief. I think, uh, yeah, Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal did that on June 5th. And at the same time, we get his interview with Ross Coltart coming out. And, you know, it's interesting. We can get to the, the Greer press conference as well, but I'm just thinking in terms of Grush, how everything in the UFO community is now just absolutely divided. And I find it very curious. Like, I remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you'd go to a UFO conference and the frustration within our community was always palpable. And, you know, frequently people would say, my goodness, can't uh, some government insider just come forward and spill the beans? I mean, this was something that people asked all the time. This was not a trivial question. And then I find when they come out, Half the community is is throwing rotten tomatoes and broken glass at them and trying to take them down or saying this is disinformation as if there's never ulterior motives or anything. There's always ulterior motives. But when I look at the claims that have come out, not just Grush, but people like Lou Elizondo who preceded him, you know, the main thing that I want to know is, is this true? What is true? And is there anything that's a lie or a deception? People love to discuss motivations all the time. I think that's a very dangerous game to get into the head of someone else. It's a great way to break a friendship apart. It's a great way to destroy marriage. It's also a great way to destroy social conversations. That is by constantly questioning the motivations of the person you're trying to communicate with. So I'm not saying we don't want to be aware of that, but for me, the number one thing always to do is to listen to the information, the data, check it as best we can, find out does this appear to be true or not true? Is this new information that is coming to our community, our society that we can work with? And yes, there's motivations. Everyone, everyone wants to be a star. Everyone wants whatever they want. But the question is, is this true? And when I look at what Grush has been saying, I certainly am not seeing anything that strikes me as a lie. Not yet, anyway. It's only been about a month. I'm not seeing anything that strikes me as anything other than what he appears honestly to believe and what he appears to have been told within his proper security clearances, which are very, very significant, by the way. So all of that, like I, I say this because I have a number of friends and colleagues who have said this is just another CIA op or another intelligence community op. My question always is, what's the op? <laughs> is this to get you, us running to the military industrial complex? And invariably, that's what people will usually fall back to. And, you know, I'm a lot more interested at this point in finding out what is true and what is not true. And so far, you know, I'm not seeing false flag here. I'm just going to put that out there. I've studied false flags a lot. I'm not saying I'm the final word, but from my perspective, there's a lot of opportunity for self-motivated, self-serving statements would never deny that. But as an actual false flag, I'm, I'm not on board with that argument yet. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems lofty to me. The it's in the mix, you know. People talk about it, but an alien false flag. I don't know. They need to go that far. They're very good at drumming up a villain, you know, some human organization that they could say we need to wage war against. So I don't know if they need to go to space just yet. I agree. But yeah, you are right that a lot of people are talking about Grush. It's been about a month. We both have our schedules, so you know something like this happens. And then I try to, you know, book an interview to talk about it. But it is bittersweet because you have people like Marco Rubio saying, well, there are many more whistleblowers. He's not the only one. We've talked to him behind closed doors. They're going to be coming out. So even I was hoping maybe something blew up in between the time of uh, booking this and, and actually occurring. But what makes you special is that in the UFO community, you are also aware of the technocratic lockdown operation. That's really what we talked about mainly last time. But the UFO community seems to think, at least half of them, that UFOs are the only thing that the state is dodgy and deceptive about. When it comes to a lot of other stuff, they might put their trust there, which is odd because they're so kind of selective about where deception might be. But Another angle I've heard you talk about recently is the prospect for narrative control, that this might be coming out not just to prop up a military industrial complex budget, but it might be kind of a test case of how that digital narrative control apparatus is working. And that's a really interesting take. Yeah, I think you put it really well. We're in an era of, I I think, potentially permanent narrative control by centralized state power, and that state is international in scope at this point. So as a society, as a civilization, we've got some very, very big challenges ahead of us in terms of maintaining our intellectual independence from the state, to say nothing of freedom of opinion. So that's a danger. I agree. In in terms of taking it back to the UFO community and, and the idea of disclosure, I think what you say is true. I think there's a large an enormous part of the UFO research that is politically out to lunch. I'll just say it. I don't think that there is a lot of astute analysis when you get beyond the UFO phenomenon. And I mean, you know, we all just went through the whole lockdown phenomenon, which I think is an enormous crime against our entire species. And they got away with it and they're getting away with it. That's, I call this part of the global revolution, which we are in the middle of. This is a I don't hear people talking about this as a revolution, but what we have been dealing with for the past several years is absolutely a very well-coordinated, breathtakingly effective global revolution to transform human society in a huge array of dramatic ways. So that's a problem. And I just think the UFO community is totally out to lunch on that. They're not really following this. So that's one problem. In terms of digging into the matters of the UFO or UAP phenomenon. Similarly, I think that there's a lot of emphasis on, on the one hand, you've got the eternal optimists. I just had a a very long series of conversations with my friend, Stephen Bassett. I mean, I love Steve like a brother. He's much, much more optimistic about the disclosure process than I have ever been. Uh, Of course, that's been the case for over two decades now. (laughs) And uh, I respect Steve, but there is this kind of optimistic side of the disclosure narrative where, you know, folks are really, really hopeful that statements by people like Grush or previously by Lou Elizondo 
or Eric Davis or Christopher Mellon that this is going to push us toward congressional hearings, which is the real goal that I think a lot of these folks have. Bassett, in fact, said to me, like, hearings are you know, virtually certain now to happen. When I spoke with him, he made a very impassioned case for that. But whether that will happen or not, is, it's always an open question, as you were just saying earlier. You know, Gresh came out, we had a full head of steam for a little while, and then it just petered out. And where is this now? Doesn't mean that the initiative is gone. But yeah, whether this is going to go anywhere is a whole other question. And the other, the other things that are happening is I'm constantly concerned about the questions we are not asking relating to this phenomenon. And maybe we can get into that later. But I feel like I'm a, a voice alone in the wilderness just saying there is a global phenomenon that goes on every single day that involves, as far as I can estimate, a potentially massive number of craft and beings that are involved in this, far, far more than we are reporting, in my view. And we really never talk about this. We don't talk like what's actually going on. It's important to talk about acquired technology and bodies. I agree. That's extremely important. But we're really almost not even talking about that, frankly. But then the fact is, who are they and what are they doing right now? This is still a, a very, to me, an incredibly important subject. And I hear no one in the UFO community research field, let alone the mainstream area, that is even broaching these matters. I think, you know, the, uh, our community is out to lunch. I've used that phrase a few times in the international geopolitical arena, for sure. But even with, you know, the areas of research that we should be talking about, I think that we've got a real problem with our priorities. Right, right. Well, that's well said. And I mean, let's broach those things because we're throwing a little criticism at the UFO community. And like you said, you think they're not really talking about the most important things. You feel a bit isolated. And one of those things being the high amount of traffic right now and what they're up to right now. And I think that's because it's hard to know. I mean, I don't get a briefing on what the UFOs and the aliens are up to at this current moment. We usually have to look back, sometimes at previous decades or isolated cases, to try to get a handle on it. But obviously, you're a little more plugged in than me. What are they up to right now? What is going on with uh, the amount of traffic out there in the world? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for letting me broach this. I'd like to get back to the things you wanted to start talking about. But in terms of the amount of traffic, you know, I try to get a handle on this because globally, there's only only one region of the world that accurately or at least attempts to record the amount of UFO sightings that occur. And that's North America. So here we have two fundamental databases. There's the National UFO Reporting Center, which is public totally open source, everything, anyone can go there. And uh, that's run by Peter Davenport, who's done this for years. And that website will record anywhere from five to six to maybe up even up to 8,000 raw sightings per year. Uh, 95 plus percent of those are in North America. Not surprising, it's basically a US website. Some reports from elsewhere trickle in. And then the other major website in North America is the MUFON management system that they have there. So, and that similarly gets about 5,000 plus reports a year. No one really knows how much overlap. No one's really done detailed data analyses of both of these sites that I'm aware of. But I I think we're talking minimum 10,000 raw reports a year in North America. That doesn't include a couple of thousand you get out of Canada from 
University of Manitoba with Chris Rutkowski up there. So let's just say 10,000 raw reports in North America. Then you have to ask yourself, how many people see UFOs without reporting them? That's, that's a large number. What is the percentage of North America vis-a-vis the rest of the world? Well, that's U.S. and Canada is still less than 5% of the global population. And so I've tried to look through these numbers many, many times and to sort of estimate what I think is the likely amount of traffic. And then, you know, you have to say, well, from raw reports, how many of those are genuine anomalous craft? I mean, these are, you know, very difficult to nail down, but that has not stopped me from trying repeatedly to get some kind of reasonable spitball estimate, if we can say, of what we're looking at. On top of that, there have been a number of polls over the years asking people, you know, have you seen UFOs ever in your life? And we've got data on that. And when I, when I add all of these up, my conclusion is that we are very likely looking at millions of sightings over the last, you know, 70, 80 years. And very likely, it wouldn't shock me at all to see over 100,000 sightings in the United States alone per year. In fact, I think it could be multiples of that. That doesn't mean that they're all aliens. So if you even take a 1% or you take a 0.1% worldwide, the way I shake it and bake it, I think we're still coming down to thousands of very, very strong UFO sightings around the world every year. So there's a lot going on. We're not really discussing it. Some of these sightings, as I often like to point out, or take place in your neighborhood or the listener's neighborhood. You know, dark craft, barely noticed, sometimes disc-shaped, sometimes triangular, hovering at 200 feet over your home or your neighbor's home at three in the morning. There's a lot of reports like that. The question is, what's that all about? There's a lot of very, very significant questions here. Who is operating these? What are they doing? Why are they doing what they're doing? Right now I'm doing a book project on USOs, that's underwater or water-based UFOs. Mm. And I'm looking at a lot of these cases and you know, trying to understand the motivations of some of these crafts. Some of them ocean-based, some are in large rivers and they're seen coming out of rivers and zipping off somewhere. Why were they in a river? Where are they going to? I'm not saying that we are easily able to get answers here, but we really ought to be thinking about this and trying to puzzle this stuff out. That's one of the things that is interesting and important to me, and I do try to spend some time each week or each month really trying to think about this because I do feel it's, you know, we want to get our facts straight. But for me, I ask myself, what's the use of having the data if I'm not at least trying my best to puzzle this out and to ask, what does this picture look like? And uh, again, one of the big things that I'm just saying is an enormous amount of traffic in the U.S., beyond the U.S., and practically no genuine, accurate data collection outside of North America on this matter. So we are woefully, woefully out of our depth here in dealing with a phenomenon that, I mean, think about it. Beings, apparently, of incredibly advanced capability, able to do things that we do not know how these are done, at least officially, operating and have been operating in secrecy for many decades. Why? Why secrecy? What is happening? Well, 
We've got claims of abductions, hybrids. That's totally legit to look into. But we just is something that we're not really discussing. I don't know if I feel you mentioned the word isolated. I might be a little strong, but I'm certainly used to being out on my own in talking about issues that I think are important and going a little bit against the grain, even within the UFO community, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it is interesting to think about what they're up to. Obviously, it seems like there's an evolving agenda or at least an evolving understanding of it. We had the Adamski contact era where things seemed to be a little more diplomatic. And then the abduction era where everyone was talking about being taken in the night, the hybriding program, as you mentioned. Well, it's hard to know like what would be next or what would be, what would be the latest understanding of it. There was that that chick who went viral on the airplane sitting next to some guy who she claims is not real. And I did like that. I don't know what to make of some random woman and a video on the internet, but I don't think I saw that. I'm not, I, when you mentioned that I was, um, Oh wow. Thinking, what are you referring to? Did I miss something big? You got to see it. I mean, it's, I think 80, 90% of people listening will have seen this, but there's just a woman (laughs) who flips out on an airplane and someone's recording from their phone. And she says, I don't care what you think of me, how crazy you think I am. That guy back there, that motherfucker is not real. And she's like, I'm getting off this plane. I don't care if you think I'm crazy. Wow. And, you know, all the heads turn. What do you mean? Not real. And, you know, maybe she was drunk. Maybe she had right. a, a couple of Valiums or something. Who knows? But sure. Yeah. Yeah. If there is a hybriding program out there, you'd have to assume that somewhere along the line, we would encounter people that we aren't quite sure yeah. have a human touch to them. Like there might be something weird going on. So absolutely, it's just a weird story that popped up. and. I don't know what to make of it, but if there is a hybriding program going on, well, it seems like they're going to be pretty successful because no one's stopping them. And then what's the next step of such a thing? Probably integration. Yes, yes, absolutely. This is the step that everyone's afraid to take is to speculate along these lines because it does sound crazy, you know, getting into like invasion of the body snatchers scenario type things. And so I realized there's always a hesitation. I hesitated for the longest time to even broach these things. But I feel that, you know, if you were a counterintelligence officer on behalf of planet Earth, on behalf of the human race, right? These are questions you would be, you would have to ask. Is this a possibility? Are there human looking beings who are not quite human? And I mean, my goodness, over the years, I've spoken to quite a few people who have persuasively told me that in fact, these were their encounters. One of them was a retired US Army Colonel with a PhD who had an experience with his wife and another friend where they were convinced they ran into a male and female couple that were not human and that were ultra telepathic. And you know, there's others I've spoken to who are equally convinced. And every one of the folks that I've interviewed personally, they struck me as very rational, very low key, not looking for attention, you know. So there is a reason to wonder Are there others that are here who kind of look like us, but aren't like us? Mm -hmm. And if you were an alien species, let's say there's a group that came from another planet. True extraterrestrial hypothesis here. We'll just speculate at first. If that were the case, they find Earth. I ask myself, what might they think of our amazing, beautiful planet that's brimming with life of all kinds? I mean, there are planets with life and then there's Earth. I mean, Earth is just exploding with life. 
I mean, we really are incredibly lucky here. We've got all this water. We have a pure iron core that gives us great magnetic field to protect us. We don't even think about these things. We are sitting on an incredibly valuable world. And yes, I do not doubt that there's life elsewhere, that there are other planets that can support life, but that they all support life as beautifully as we do, as Earth does. It's really worth asking. We may have a fairly rare planet. We have a moon that's quite large and stabilizes our environment in ways that, you know, we got our moon kind of by chance, kind of by chance. The astronomical view of it is that it happened about, I think, 4.2 billion years ago when the Mars-sized world collided with Earth in the early formation of the solar system. If that had not happened, our planet's history would have been very different. So there are a lot of things that make Earth really unique and valuable. And so therefore, if there is an alien group that came here from elsewhere, or multiple alien groups, then they wouldn't just find us interesting, we human beings, which I think we are, but they would find our world very potentially quite valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think about it further, I ask. So if they're aliens from another world, they probably can't just walk around on the planet's surface. Everything's wrong for them. Gravity's wrong. Microorganisms are wrong. Solar radiation is wrong. Like they would have to adapt their physiology to be here. There would be no question about that. And I suspect that that's kind of what some of them at least are doing. Yeah, totally possible. And you probably remember I'm way more attracted to the non-ETH hypothesis possibilities. I just think that there's um, kind of really deep overlaps with things that happen in the occult world and, and that sort of thing. And I kind of think of these beings as possibly just multidimensional. And that's kind of splitting hairs because a lot of people talk about the travel being multidimensional. So, you know, if a being does come here and they pop out from another dimension, who knows exactly where their home is? Is it an, another sphere out in the universe or is it some other dimension that we have a hard time even defining? But I kind of think of it as like a multidimensional colonization. Like they know that there's something here, just one, one click away on the next page and they, they want to, they want to be here. So again, that probably speaks to some physiology mm -hmm. requirements to maintain staying in this place. But so often you hear people saying, oh, they just dissipate. And, you know, what is that about? And then there's crossover with uh, the dream world. You know, there's a story later I might want to try to get into. But you just interviewed Brandon Fogel about this. And he said that they see things on Skinwalker Ranch that dissipate. Sometimes they follow them home. They call it the hitchhiker phenomenon. And he says, oh, it's really dark. You know, uh, poltergeist activity comes back to people's homes. He mentioned twisted up ceiling fans. I mean, that would scare the shit out of me if. Uh, if I felt some presence in my home and looked up at my ceiling fan and it was like all gnarled up, like that's pretty uh, clear. terrifying. That would be terrifying. Yes. Yeah. Something weird. Something weird's going on. I think it's a lot weirder than just planet hopping out there. I go back and forth. I definitely can see where you're coming from with some of that. I would emphasize, though, an extraterrestrial civilization could, in my view, account for probably 90 plus percent of the, the factors that the multidimensionalists will say. So for example, the real connection between say occult or you know ritualist activities, occultism and UFO phenomenon could very well just be telepathy. Yeah. 
So if you have a, a species that has a high level of telepathy, I mean, I think I'm interested in a lot of the remote viewers and I've spent a lot of time talking to them and studying them. And I think the consensus there is that all human beings have telepathic capability to significant extent, usually untapped by most of us, but we have it. And that's probably something that we developed through our own evolution as a species. I'm going to just take a guess. So if you have an alien species that has that capability, but even pitched at a higher level, at a more intense level, I think then a lot of the things that we talk about in terms of consciousness, in terms of mental downloads that people will have that they'll talk about or anything that's basically a consciousness or non-local connection, I think can probably easily be explained through a high level of alien telepathy. Now, there are things that make you wonder, are we dealing with dimensions? I mean, absolutely. It does make me wonder. But there's the old dictum of Arthur C. Clarke, you know, (laughs) paraphrase, but any sufficiently advanced technology will appear like magic. Yeah. And that's definitely a possibility. I mean, look where we are as a society compared to a mere 100 years ago, compared to the 1920s, which was a very advanced time. They had telephone by then. They had uh, cars, they had railroads, they had airplanes. Hey, they were like in modernity. And just look at what we can do a mere century later. And some of the things that we can do very likely would potentially appear magical simply to our great-grandparents. So I'm, you know, I'm still on the fence there. I still think that an extraterrestrial hypothesis still might be more, let's say, parsimonious than some of the others. But I, you know, I'm not going to say that there's no interdimensionality to this. I can't say that I know for a fact. So there's a lot of mystery to this still. <laughs> yeah, and those are great points. Totally possible. I'm with you. And you mentioned USOs and working on this new book, and I am glad you said that because. You know, maybe we'll get back to David Grush. Who knows? People can look that up. It's pretty popular. Who isn't talking about David Grush? Let me fold in something that is a little more obscure. But there was a recent 4chan poster, which, of course, you got to take with a grain of salt. But he made these wild claims. Then he ended up coming back and answering a lot of questions. But just to read his preliminary post here, he said, I have intimate knowledge of what the U.S. currently knows about UFOs minus the last two years. UFOs are primarily unmanned drones. UFOs are built to spec each time they're deployed. UFOs are created by a mobile construction facility that hides in the ocean. The construction facility, which is in the Bermuda Triangle, destroys anything that comes close to it and will disappear for days when approached aggressively. The U.S. believes the facility has been active on Earth for at least 100 years or maybe thousands of years and seems automated. The U.S. believes they are not here to harm us. They only seem interested in us once they realize we are destroying things around us, including each other. One of the officials in charge said something that stuck with me. He says, they act like zookeepers of a zoo, uninterested in the daily life of the wildlife until there's a problem. So obviously much less official than a military whistleblower. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on that? This isn't the first time I've heard claims of underground facilities that are either airports, you know, water ports for these things, or maybe there's a portal down there, or maybe just like this guy says, a construction facility. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I think it's, I mean, on my first hearing about it, I wouldn't say it's impossible. 
I would not at all. As an automated, I don't know if that would completely, that doesn't completely solve the mystery of everything that we're reporting. No. Uh, because there are you know, innumerable reports of actual alien beings and alien bodies, not simply an automated facility. But maybe that's an automated facility that custom creates its own biological organisms. I mean, you get to a certain advanced state of your own AI, and presumably you might be able to do that. You know, not just create your own technology, but manufacture your own beings. Is that partially what we're seeing? Maybe the answer is yes. You know, all reports of gray aliens, for example, show them to be either sexless or practically sexless. I mean, it's very difficult to determine the gender for most of them. So that could be. And the thing is, if it's 100 years or more than 100 years old, that actually could make sense in a lot of ways because the thing is, my view is any alien species that has been monitoring us for a long time, my current view is that they would know, absolutely they would know that it was an inevitability that we're going to develop the technology to essentially jump right into their world. And the only question is when. And I think they probably had a good idea of predicting that. I mean, you could really say our path has been inevitable since we first developed language, uh, complex language, maybe, right? and certainly written language. I think once we did that, we were on in an inevitable path. I actually firmly believe that now. So you think, you know, they would say, okay, let's put our facility in place here to set up a permanent remote monitoring base. Ocean's a good spot, and we will engage in whatever monitoring we need to do. Yeah, maybe. The only problem is that when I look at the details of the actual many, many, many sightings that people have reported over the years, I mean, we're talking everything from little orange orbs the size of a basketball to massive, massive, massive craft the size of aircraft carriers or more, sometimes with windows where you can see silhouetted beings through, according to many reports, sometimes not. There's a tremendous variation in what people have reported, reliable witnesses, I think. So, you know, we're, we need to really try to figure this out. Like, how many groups are here? What are they up to? Are they all being manufactured out of the ocean facility? I kind of doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I also kind of doubt that that's all that is going on, but to add one more log to that fire, I don't know much about Josh Reed. His Twitter profile says he's a veteran who's been researching conspiracy for 25 years, and he runs something called the Red Pill Project. Are you aware of Josh? Oh, I've, I've heard of the Red Pill Project, yeah. Okay, well, this is interesting, but he said that uh, when this Titanic submarine thing imploded, the story came out that the Navy detected it with their acoustic detection system. So. Right. Josh linked to that fairly mainstream story and said, well, since they said it, I guess we can talk about it. In the 1970s, the U.S. Navy placed acoustic sensors all over the ocean floor to detect submarines and underwater activity. It's given the Navy an amazing perspective on the underwater terrain. And then he says, one of my contacts while in the Navy who worked on the ASW team who was responsible for monitoring these sensors discussed underwater objects they detected that would travel at thousands of miles per hour. And he said they also detected various structures underwater that are active and they stay clear of. Anyway, enjoy your day. And I just thought that was uh, really a fun way to, to drop that. But I just love how the two claims that I saw in the same week seemed to back each other up a little bit. Have you ever heard anything along those yep. lines? 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're uh, quoting him because I, I think I tend to believe what he's saying here. Definitely, the whole thing of the censors, I don't think that's controversial. I have absolutely heard as much from some of the limited information I've gotten from individuals about this. And it's obvious that the U.S. Navy needs to have some kind of sensing capability, acoustic sonar, you know, in the ocean. Of course they would. Absolutely they do. And in terms of the stories of very, very fast-moving underwater craft, yes, absolutely. We hear this all the time. U.S. and Russian, and back in the days of the Soviet Union as well, they were reporting this frequently enough. So I don't think there's any question whatsoever about ultra, ultra fast-moving underwater vehicles. Not even a slight question in my mind. In terms of facilities, that's new to me. But, you know, I mean, on the face of it, I could believe it. I mean, we want to, a claim like that is something that we want more corroboration on, obviously. Even if not proof, we want at least some corroboration. But I think it's interesting and quite likely, quite possibly true, we'll say. (laughs) Yes. And one of the other real provocative avenues in all this stuff to me is that idea of a breakaway civilization. Obviously, you're well aware of of that speculation. And just this idea that it isn't aliens or non-human intelligences alone, but they're integrated with some people who have maybe cracked the technology or something to that degree. And this is a weird, random thing I wanted to ask you about. But I recently interviewed Paul Shatskin, who wrote a biography of T. Townsend Brown with the assistance of Brown's daughter, Linda, Mm -hmm. and an anonymous source who went by Morgan. So Linda knew Morgan as her dad's protege and friend. She'd met him many times. He's a legit person, but his name was just withheld from the book. But he seems to be part of an invisible college or breakaway group who brought T. Townsend Brown in when they saw value in his work. Now, he said a lot of stuff, but most interesting to me was that For a time, Brown put this anti-gravity work aside. And then there was a strange day where both T. Townsend Brown and his daughter woke up having thought they had a dream of a craft flying down into the backyard and the work being brought back to him by three humanoid figures. And then they flew off again. Hmm. Morgan said in the book, it wasn't a dream. It was us. We brought the material back for him to work on. But this really fascinated me because... We know how much of the abduction phenomenon seems kind of spacey and dreamlike. And here you have a secret group that can manipulate a person like T. Townsend Brown into not being sure if an experience was real or not, and not even presenting themselves as human, apparently, and flying down in a saucer-like craft. I know I'm dumping a lot on you right now, but have you heard this story before or any others that might relate to this breakaway group having these kinds of capabilities? I haven't heard that story about Brown. That's very interesting. I'm sure some of your listeners are very well aware of him, but if they're not, I mean, Thomas Townsend Brown was a very highly brilliant scientist who back in the 20s and 30s was working on what became known as electrogravitics. And the Townsend Bailey effect is named after, you know, him. Basically, he was a pioneer in anti-gravity. And he had a project called Winter Haven back in the 50s where he was essentially charging a disc-shaped craft, electrostatic positive and negative charges at either end. He was attaching it to a tether, to a pole, and he was able to get that thing to move. He was getting propulsion out of it by simply an electrostatic charge. And then the next thing you know, here comes the U.S. Navy, and 
Townsend Brown's work goes very quiet. Mm -hmm. And there's been talk ever since that he did very deeply classified work for the military industrial complex. I totally believe that. I think he absolutely did. And that they made their own breakthroughs in, at least to some extent, when we're talking about anti-grav technology. And the real question that I keep asking is, what are they doing with that tech? It's not in any of the conventional American wars that have been fought since then. So are they dealing with this in some kind of ultra covert, black budget manner, off world, that type of thing, which I suspect. But there's a story you're talking about. No, I had not heard that. But you know, you're leading into something else, which is just how far out, how advanced is what we might call the breakaway civilization, what I termed that many years ago. And you know, we're speculating here, but I do think that they've got access to some significant anti-gravitic technology through electrogravitics, probably. And where else? Like, what else have they done with that? Are they able to go places that are off limits to ordinary people? I think probably yes. And what else do they know that goes beyond what uh, the public world has? And that's a bit of guesswork, but I do think there's a secret space program to some extent. I do think that there's a secret oceanic project. And I do think that there is a large number of clandestine underground bases as well that they are probably managing. And very likely, very possibly, let's say, in conjunction with some non-human intelligences. I would be shocked if that were not the case, in fact. (laughs) So when we're talking about manufacturing facilities, one thing that I wonder is like, who's making these craft? Yeah. Are they all just flying in from Alpha Centauri or some farther away place? Are they, are they all coming from somewhere else? Or are they being manufactured here on Earth? Because I think there's a lot of them. And if that's the case, then where is this manufacturing facility? Are they doing it fully with alien workers? Or is it all alien AI? Or do they have human beings involved? Well, we have a number of stories over the years of human ET collaboration in terms of manufacturing. Maybe some of those are true. So there's, there's a huge, it's a massive, massive reality, potentially, that is, you know, under the rug. <laughs> you lift up the rug and you can see all of this stuff underneath it. And I suspect that there is a very significant infrastructure and reality behind all this very, very tepid conversation we're having publicly about UAP. And even, you know, you still have skeptics even now saying, well, you know, these are still misidentifications of this or that. And it's foolish on the one hand, but it's also dangerous because we've got a very significant phenomenon going on here. It's very, very big. And we're still diddling around, not really making any progress, not really saying anything of genuine significance about this. And I think that's very, very unfortunate. And we really need to change that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. And That story made me think about the legend of Eisenhower making some deal with these beings. And that's something Grush alluded to. He said there are agreements that risk putting our future in jeopardy, which might speak to a hybriding program. What could jeopardize our future other than like agreeing to covertly let them integrate into us or something like it seems to line up a little bit, Mm -hmm. but. I heard from you that apparently Eisenhower was really upset that this agreement, after it was made, these programs got away from him. They went so dark and compartmentalized that he lost track 
Yeah. Well, Brown was doing all this work right during Eisenhower's presidency, right on through the 1950s. Right. In fact, Brown helped start a group in 1956 to investigate UFOs called the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. And I find it interesting that's right. that now that's the official term rather than UFO anyway. <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah, Brown formed NICAP, which was the greatest UFO, civilian UFO group of the 50s and 60s by far. I mean, there was APRO, they were great too, but NICAP, I think, has to be number one. He created it, he lost control of it early on and it was run by Donald Kehoe. But it was created by Brown, very good point. You were saying something very interesting a moment ago and I wanted to jump in and I can't quite recall what I wanted to say, but, oh yeah, the 50s and Eisenhower. Yeah, it's absolutely verifiably 100% true that Eisenhower, by the end of his presidency, was, this goes well beyond UFOs. Eisenhower was deeply, deeply, deeply worried, concerned that his whole national security apparatus had just gotten completely out of his control. And remember, he wasn't just a popular two-term president. He'd been a five-star general. <laughs> he, he ran the allied World War II effort out in the field. You know, He was one of the top guys. And so if he was unable to control his own military in terms of not just UFOs, but like strategic response in terms of a nuclear conflict. He had lost complete control over strategic air command, turns out. And then, you know, all the black budget covert ops that the CIA was engaged in, I think had to knock him for a loop there. I mean, he was involved in so many of these, oversaw loosely so many regime change activities and so much stuff. You really have to wonder, because I think Eisenhower was someone who had genuine integrity. I really do believe that. And he becomes incredibly popular. He's an obvious presidential candidate and he comes in and he's like, oh my dear God, what have I gotten into? I suspect <laughs> some of that happened. And so he was concerned and that I think does inform a lot of his very famous farewell address when he talks about the dangers of a military industrial complex. Yeah. And the UFO part of it, I'll just throw in here, is related to this all. The reason I got into the UFO subject 30 years ago was because I became persuaded that there was a reality to it and that it was completely, utterly missing from our official history, our mainstream history. And what I always wanted to do is to kind of mainstream the UFO subject into our standard history and to kind of fit it in. And when you look at the Eisenhower administration, just for one, one thing, it's obvious that the UFO phenomenon was very, very important to them, just based on some of the specific military encounters that we know happened, some of the crash retrievals that we are pretty certain happened, Kingman in 1953 being one obvious one, and there's others. So yeah, I think Eisenhower was absolutely on top of this. I think he was briefed on a regular basis, but he also might've felt that he was losing control over it. That wouldn't shock me in the least. Mm -hmm. And in terms of things going on right now, it seems like a major trope in ufology is that activity ramps up during times of war. You got the Foo Fighters in World War II. There's hmm. stories about Vietnam. Well, we have a, a, a wartime situation right now. Is that some aspect of the high traffic that you're hearing about that's going on in real time? Have hmm. you seen any kind of connection between question. what's going on over there and, and heightened activity? Well, as far as like the last couple of years, 
particularly since the war in Ukraine commenced uh, about a year and a half ago. I'm not sure that I'm noticing yet, at least in terms of the data, that there's been a significant jump in activity, but it's worth looking into. So you put a little bug in my ear and I want to look into that. The fact is that, to my view, there is very intense activity that goes on every year, every year. I don't think there's an exception. Some years seem like they're slower than others, but when I look into it, it seems more of a function of just publicity and visibility of these cases, not necessarily that they aren't happening. So it is difficult to get a hard sense of exactly how much traffic is happening, except in rough terms, it certainly appears to me that it's a lot every year. But I would say that human activity, and particularly warfare, does seem to be of interest to these other beings, if we can call them that. You mentioned Foo Fighters in the Second World War 80 years ago. Yes, they seem to have a very strong interest in that. There's been consistently an interest in leading aircraft, you know, military aircraft, particularly by these other objects. We have a lot of military reports of that sort of thing. They're interested in our nuclear technology, as many people in the field know. So I think they're interested in that. They're interested in our energy production, not just nuclear, but oil. Oil fields have often been the scene of these things. So they're interested in our technology and our development. I think they are tracking us and watching for our next big leap. And I think that what we're doing now is we are, as I mentioned before, we're in the middle of a definite global revolution. It's a top-down, internationally directed one. It will include digitization of essentially everything. All information is becoming digitized, monitored, surveilled, controlled, all people controlled, surveilled, all global economies, all national economies, excuse me, to be managed and controlled. Movement of people will be very, very carefully monitored from here on more and more. I think we're just moving into that kind of a world. And then, of course, one in which we are getting very, very strong artificial intelligence that will inevitably transform our global economy. And look, this has to be said, probably put lots and lots and lots of people out of work. And you know what they're going to be able to do with their lives is a really good question. Is this all going to be UBI? And if that's the case, we're going to a major social civilizational transformation. And I have to think that these other beings are observing this. I think ultimately we're becoming more and more like them. Yeah. That's actually what I think we're doing. We're turning ourselves into a kind of a hive mind. To put it pejoratively, a big human anthill <laughs> is what we're creating for ourselves, which I suspect is kind of what they already are. I think they're already on that kind of a situation where they have a kind of collective consciousness. Seems that way to me. And I think that we are moving rapidly in that direction in the space of just a few generations. So I think they're watching this transformation of humanity. I agree. And it's really interesting because when you frame it, in the alien context of this hive mind, this uniform society, it kind of sounds like it has some mystique and it's like a, a evolutionary leap and it sounds like a, a good thing in some ways. But then when you frame it as uh, a new world order, technocratic, monothink culture, monoculture, you know, erase anything that makes distinctions between people or nations then it doesn't sound so fun. It sounds like no, really no. terrible. Well, for the last 200 plus years, our civilization has been in love with the idea of progress. Like we're just in love with it. 
all of us grew up with this idea. I remember being five years old and my mother, who was not a college educated woman at all, but she was in with the style of the times, the, the mindset. She talked to me about progress over and over. I didn't even know what it was, <laughs> but I remember being five years old thinking, oh, okay, progress, that's a good thing. And so I think most of us kind of grew up with this idea that Star Trek, you know, that whole vision, the world is just gonna be this wonderful thing. We're gonna, yeah, there'll be challenges in the future, but it's gonna be great. We're gonna fix all of our problems. You look at old books from the 19th and up to the mid 20th century, and you see phrases like human perfectibility, particularly a uh, hundred years ago or more, there were, people were really into this. We're gonna perfect human society through science and all of this scientific utopianism really dominated. And to a large extent, still dominates. If you really want to talk about the globalists, the Davos crowd, the Bilderberg people, they are still on this same exact path. They believe in this. But this idea that through science, you can perfect, uh, create a kind of scientific utopia. I'm telling you, they absolutely believe this. And many of us, I think, sort of implicitly grew up with this idea, but I question it. I'm not saying that change isn't inevitable. It's always got to happen. We have gone through a very long period of evolution as a species. Of course, we're gonna to continue to change. But what we're looking at right now is a very dramatic, very massive, practically overnight transformation of a human civilization and human species, frankly, that is not gonna come without massive, without massive disruption and pain and sorrow for many, many people. And also a a transformation, I think, of what we can say human nature itself, I think, is already starting to happen. I think these are going to have some, you know, inevitably what we might call positive repercussions and some very negative repercussions. What's it going to be like to have a society in which everyone's got a brain-computer interface, you know, a little wire sticking into their brain, for example? What will that mean? You'll be connected to the web, presumably. And, oh, yeah, the web will be connected to you. (laughs) And where's your privacy? What if there's a, a very, very overwhelmingly powerful AI that manages the whole process and corrects wrong think? Is this impossible? Absolutely not impossible. So is that progress? Well, you could say it's kind of like progress. Is it good progress? Do people want it? Well, that's a whole other issue. So this idea that all technological change and progress is a good thing, I question. And I do think that we are It's a real irony, you know, as we're exploring this phenomenon of potentially other beings, non-human intelligences here. We are, I think, in danger of losing our own humanity. You've got these non-human intelligences here, and suddenly it looks to me, I look around, and it's like the humanity that we have had for thousands of years. I really wonder how stable is that? what will that humanity be like in another century? There are folks out there, a lot of the AI utopians, in my view, living in fairy tale land who believe, oh, it's gonna be wonderful. We'll have the power of the gods, as if that's a good thing. (laughs) Well, I, I will beg to differ. So I think whether aliens are here or not, we're causing big, big problems for ourselves. But the presence of these other, and I think plural, non-human intelligences that are here, gives our place in this moment of time just an incredible complexity that, again, I, I am convinced we're not really beginning to understand the level of complexity that our reality seems to entail. Yeah. 
I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> now, hey, I didn't want to cut you off. You want to talk about the Stephen Greer press conference. Oh, yeah. You want to get it back into Grush. I'm game. You were very, very gracious for letting me go off on my little rant here. But I want to be able to talk about the things that you're also interested in. So I didn't want to hijack this. Uh, it's all good. I, I want to talk about the most interesting things and, uh, you know, things you're most passionate about. But yes, it is definitely a scary time to be starting a family, Richard. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you've got my seven. <laughs> and, and congratulations, by the way. You've got uh, a thanks, beautiful thanks. Uh, less than a two-year-old, I think you said, and you got one on the way. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. It's always worth it. The future looks intense, but I mean, you wouldn't want to advocate for stopping the starting of families. That's probably even worse. And I think, I think it makes you a better person. I truly, truly believe that. It's a lot of responsibility. You know, I raised two kids myself and there's a lot of sacrifice involved, of course, but it's worth it every step of the way. Even the heartache, there's always heartache. Uh, there's good times, there's bad times, but it's always worth it. Yeah, yeah. I feel more vulnerable to being crushed emotionally than ever before. You know, right. I was pretty uh, armored up before and it was just me running around, doing whatever I wanted. Oh, can't with your kids. But anyway, uh, yeah, let's get into David Grush just a, a little bit. I mean, for people who aren't aware, I just have a couple of bullet points of some of the things he said. He said, of course, there are agreements between the government and these beings that risk putting our future in jeopardy, that people have been killed to keep this secret. The Vatican is known since the 1930s because of a recovered craft in Italy. They have found ways to take these crafts down, and they sometimes come with dead pilots. Sometimes these crafts seem to be gifted or intentionally left to be found. Mm -hmm. There have been deadly encounters, but they're mostly neutral. And people involved in crash retrievals do get sick and injured because they are occasionally some type of radioactive, these things that are left behind. So, I mean, that's the gist. That's most of the stuff I thought was interesting. Yeah. But what would well, you, let me just say, yeah, I, I'll just want to comment on that. And every single of those points have been discussed by, I think, serious UFO, UAP researchers for years. And I do think like those already were my conclusions long before he said those things. And I'm not the only person who came to those very exact same conclusions. The Italian crash, that I think did come as a surprise to a lot of people, but only because they really were not aware of the research of Roberto Pinotti of Italy, who is Italy's leading UFO researcher by far, and has looked into this as well. I mean, there are Italian government documents. This is during the era of Benito Mussolini in the 19, early 30s. But it does appear to be a reasonable case that some exotic craft did come down in Italy in 1933, and that the Germans eventually, to their alliance, which didn't happen overnight, but eventually, I mean, the Nazi government was, of course, very close to the fascist government of Mussolini, that the Germans also became aware of this. Whether or not they got access to it or not is another question, I don't know, but the idea of an Italian UFO crash has, I think, become more respected over the last decade. And so, the fact that Grush said it, I think is interesting. Now, the real question is, where is Grush getting his information from? We don't really know. Like, he, he hasn't provided any hardcore documentation to say, here, this, this is it. Everything he's saying, he states, came to him through high-level sources. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing that you always hear about Grush is that 
his colleagues respect him very, very highly. I've listened to Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal both talk about Grush. I've listened to uh, Ross Coulthart talk about Grush. Uh, Coulthart said, you know, something like there's a conga line of people willing to stand up for and support Grush's credibility, that he has a lot of support, that his security clearances are or were exceptionally high, very high, higher than the UAP task force, is in fact. So he's worth listening to. But what we don't know is where he's getting that information from specifically. And, you know, one question that congressional hearings could be useful for is if questions like this are asked, like, where is this coming from? And are there other whistleblowers that can be brought forth? We've had rumors of this. So Grush, you know, I think what he has said is is kind of reopening the door and maybe pushing that door open a bit wider than it was before. But it's not a slam dunk. It's not proof. But it is, in my view, absolutely important to take seriously what he is saying. He appears to be a serious person. He's a young guy. He's in his early 30s. And I think some people thought his manner was a bit flippant on camera. You know, I just think that's what you get with a young guy. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's not serious. I think he is a serious person. So we just need follow-up. How and when that's going to happen is really the big question right now. Like, where is this going to go? <laughs> right, right. With, with my luck, it'll be tomorrow, right after I've talked <laughs> to you today. <laughs> uh, I want to try to fold in one more thing, just because uh, you had a recent episode of The Richard Dolan Show titled Humanity at a Crossroads. And I think it was in there that you mentioned empires in decline or systems that have collapsed, empires that have collapsed, and how there is a parallel with UFO disclosure coming out in those times. You mentioned the fall of the Soviet Union. Oh, yes. Okay. Francisco Franco, fallout from Spain. Right. You know, obviously you're the historian and I get a lot of this stuff confused, but what would be some examples of that where we see empires in their final moments and a, a real parallel with knowledge of, of UFOs or a little bit of disclosure coming out of that? Yeah, that's something that I've wondered about for many years, many years. Really, what I, I think is there are times in recent history, looking at the UFO secret, where when a society is in a state of great instability, that you always have the capability, the potential of sometimes it's a case of the rats jumping the sinking ship, and just sometimes it's a case of security measures becoming lax and secrets can come out. So when you've got either major regime change, like in the case of Spain, after the death of Francisco Franco, who was a well, dictator of Spain for many decades. He died in the mid-1970s. Franco dies, and within two years, there's several hundred Spanish UFO reports that are released by the government. I don't think there's any coincidence there. It was a regime change, and there was a sense of openness and liberalization that occurred and Spain entered a kind of a new era in terms of information. It happened in China after Mao Zedong died. Mao died in 1976. Basically the same thing. Under Deng Xiaoping, who succeeded him, you start seeing a significant amount of openness happening in China by the older standards of Mao, for sure. And that included, among other things, UFO research and data. A lot of it came out. When the United States went through Watergate, which didn't result in a total regime change, but it was great instability. That resulted in the passage of a strengthened Freedom of Information Act at the end of Richard Nixon's 
administration there, and that directly resulted in an explosion of UFO data that we all have now had access to. And that was as a result of a major governmental crisis in the United States, directly related. And the biggest example, I would say, is the demise of the Soviet Union at the end of the 1980s, early 90s, where when the Soviet Union was still around in 1987, 88, 89, and all that, there were major, you know, revolutionary statements by leading Soviet officials about the reality of UFOs. I think most Americans, we, I don't think people are aware of this, but you're talking Soviet ministers of defense and, you know, four-star generals talking about this to the press about UFO encounters that the Soviet military was having, like dramatic, dramatic stuff. And then, of course, after the Soviet Union ended, their so-called KGB blue file. Yeah, they had a blue file too, just like we do. That got out, or at least large portions of it came out. George Knapp, the journalist, got access to some of that and talked about it. So in other words, when that's a case of the rats deserting a sinking ship, I think, where you've got the really the end of a government and this brief period where things are in flux and information comes out. And so in our society today, I look at the position of the United States and I see it as very unstable. I think they're, I don't want to get you in trouble here, but the U.S. is backing a war that's not going to end well for the United States. Right. There is 0% chance that it's going to end well. They're trying to win the public relations aspect of it. That's because that's the only thing they can. The military, the geopolitics, this is a huge, monumental strategic blunder by the United States and the West, prompted by incredible arrogance and a belief that they could do no wrong. And, and this is coming back to bite them real bad. So this is a disaster, <laughs> which I'm just going to say, I call this right from the beginning and even before the beginning. I, I just never saw that the U.S. is an honest player in anything that it does. And increasingly, I don't see the U.S. as an intelligent player in what it does. I think they make very, very foolish, reckless decisions. Mm. And so as a result of that, as a result of the war that is not going to go well, I said this over a year, a year and a half ago, I said, this will result in greater repression, information control by the West, and that has happened. That is happening. There's a lot of pushback, but there's still like tremendous information control over, over the war, over the discontent, over the ruinous economic decisions that have been made as a result. And that this, you know, the question is, will this bring matters to a crisis? You have a military privately that's furious over what has been happening. I mean, you've got some crazy hardliners. Yeah, they're still running policy out of Washington. But there's a lot of people in the military, traditional military men and women who are not happy with what the United States has done in relation to this war and how it's, I think the number is $170 billion that have gone to Ukraine that are just going right down the toilet. So there's a lot of very strong levels of dissatisfaction. And when you have a large amount of dissatisfaction within your military, who knows where this can end? And I really wonder, a guy like Grush, you know, where we started this conversation with, these people talk about more than just UFOs, right? They're part of the Pentagon structure. They talk about much, much more than just UAP, UFOs. And I do believe, I suspect and believe that there's a lot of major dissatisfaction within the Pentagon over U.S. policy and how some of these people, I think, see that this is a train that's going to 
slam into a wall or go off a cliff or something. Mm. And so I wonder, you know, does this provide opportunity for further whistleblowers and disclosures? And I think, yeah, it certainly does provide an opportunity when you have unhappy people who believe that the direction of policy is going in the wrong way in one form or another. Will they be willing to talk? And I think uh, possibly, yeah. Mm. Well, I'm glad I asked. I mean, on that somewhat sour note, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> um, man, you know, you are one of the greats and a show like this can only be as good as the guests who come on it. So I can't thank you enough. And I'm glad we could talk about recent events and just a Pandora's box of stuff, really. But let people know where they should follow you and also let them know about the new edition of UFOs for the 21st Century Mind or any other stuff you got going on. Thank you. Yeah. My main website, where I really do most of my work, is richardolanmembers.com. It is a membership site, but there's a lot of free material there. I put up free stuff there regularly. People can just browse if they don't want to join. I try to keep it cheap, but it is what I do. I've got a YouTube channel, Richard Olin Intelligent Disclosure. Do check it out. I try to put new content up there on a weekly basis, sometimes every other week. I'm not a YouTube pro like, like some of the folks out there, but I, I try to do my best with that. And my latest edition of UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Yeah, that was something I'm glad I did last fall of 2022. I thought, let's update it. That, that was my attempt to kind of write a single volume, kind of everything having to do with the UFO book. And I think that succeeded when I wrote it, but that book came out about 10 years ago. And I thought, there's been a lot happening in the UFO field since then. How about you write a, a very long chapter to bring it up to date? So that's what I did. And uh, that takes it right up to the end of 2022. So much more up to date than it was. So I dropped about 60 pages additional to write about TTSA and and other things of the last decade that I thought were significant. Some interesting sightings I included and some other things. So that's UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. And I'm about to put that out as an audiobook with my voice. We're in the home stretch of getting that out. I'm happy about that. And then I, I'm currently working on the USO book project, which I mentioned. And that's a fascinating project for me. I've got about 300 pages done, but I've got another 300 to go. I think mm. it's, this is a long book, but I'm absolutely in love with the book. It's an area of research that our field needs, a kind of compendium of many of the most important water-based sightings that we know about. I have no doubt that I've missed many, but you know, I collect all I can. And I'm trying to put that together in a, in a coherent narrative. So will that be done this year? There's a chance. Yeah, more, I really want that book done this year. And we're going to try to illustrate it. So these are fun projects. I enjoy doing them. For me, one thing I don't want to do, I, I realize I'm making you go longer here. Oh, good. I've never liked getting caught up in like the daily news portion of the UFO field. So sometimes I feel like, oh, I, I didn't know this thing happened this week. Or <laughs> I have to constantly struggle to get up to speed because I'm, I'm usually in my own area of research. But it is important for me personally to stay on top of the, the news too for the UFO subject but always incorporating the past into the present to the best of my ability. Last thing I just want to say is I feel very strongly that our community of researchers seriously needs to not get caught up in disclosure mania and rather, not that that's bad, not that we don't want some kind of openness and disclosure. I think we do. 
But to trust our government, I think is a very bad idea. I don't think our government is trustworthy. Furthermore, I just think there are questions we must continue to ask, which is why is all this traffic going on worldwide and what are these beings doing? And I feel that in the UFO community, people, maybe they're bored by sightings. They just think, oh yeah, just another sighting. I'm like, no, this is where the rubber meets the road and we need to be understanding these sightings. We need to be analyzing these sightings. We need to be figuring out what they represent. So if there's a message I have for today, that would be it. Mm. Wise words. Yes, sightings are an indication of an operation and that operation is what we need to figure out. But again, you're one of my favorite people. I'm lucky to get some of your time. Keep fighting the good fight as you do and take care. Thank you so much, Greg. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. There we have it, guys. The best of the best. Richard is just so great when it comes to his recall of so many things, as well as the nuts and bolts history of UFOs, and of course, how the military industrial complex and the technocratic elite really work. The last few years have clearly made that so obvious. There are people who have written some great UFO books and books about black ops projects and government secrets. But during the COVID years, they just completely acquiesced and made very public statements about how everyone should just obey and stop being skeptical. And it really separated the ones who understand the big picture and believe what they say from those who just thought it was fun to pretend to be counterculture or pretend to be a critic of the big machine. But Richard will say some very bold things that I wholeheartedly agree with and does it without raising his voice or projecting a vibe of hopelessness. And those are things I appreciate too. I'm just a big fan and I'm glad I'm getting this to you without much more delay because they're talking about congressional hearings on Grush and bringing out more whistleblowers. And I was already nervous about something big happening right after we recorded this. But that is the nature of UFO news these days. A lot of it is just a slow drip, but it's somewhat consistently happening. Also, I was sick as a dog for the two and a half days before recording this. I don't know what hit me, but it laid me right out. So I was trying to prepare through a lot of the recuperation and the worst of it, and probably was still short of being on my A-game, but... The show must go on, and I didn't want to postpone it and put myself behind again, and I think it worked out really well. I told Richard I wanted to talk about Grush's claims, but that really was just a catalyst to get an interview on the books, and if he has his own ideas of what's most important to talk about right now, or what's the latest in his own research, well, that's even better, because you can hear commentary on the Grush claims many other places. And if you're interested, then you probably already have. Same with the Stephen Greer press conference. So I'm glad we had those things on the list, but also had plenty of other stuff to fold into. I think he's right about ufology sort of focusing on the wrong things or not really seeing the forest for the trees. And I think that's because they don't have the same knowledge base because a lot of people came at ufos directly they wanted to know about this they've written six ufo books but richard is a military historian who found ufos intriguing and sort of came at it 
more indirectly and were lucky that he found value in going down these crazy avenues because some of the other options out there lack the same discernment. You know, we've talked about this, but it's very similar to when you have a conspiracy researcher without any occult background giving very amateur breakdowns of symbolism or talking about what occult rituals really are when they've never undertaken that pretty dense study. A lot of the things we talk about here are interrelated, so if your focus as a researcher is too narrow, it can be hard to connect the right dots. But that is why we talk to a wide range of people about all sorts of crazy stuff, and a lot of the times it's left up to you guys to find the places where things overlap, right? And if you only listen to the free first hour of the Higher Side Chats today and every day, you miss a lot. Today's second hour got into the claims of a Raytheon contractor that worked at the South Pole, Richard's off-the-record conversations, his thoughts on the size and scope of one or more breakaway civilizations, the question of how far back a breakaway civilization could go, Freemasons, sacred geometry, and dimensional openings. That was fun. We also talked about the prospect of a dream dimension existing that could be accessed technologically. Richard's anecdote about seeing spoon bending firsthand. A little inside scoop about Wolfgang Puck's cutlery. Richard's spiritual experiences and thoughts on shamanism. And the connection between empires in decline and UFO disclosure. There are some historic examples there that. I thought were pretty interesting. All great stuff. Sign up for Plus right there in your show notes. Plug in the new RSS feed into your podcasting app and you're good to go. Seven-day free trial to start you off and all that. So in higher side news, yes, I'm still giving away 500 bucks an episode until the end of the month. We had another winner and I talked to this person and I got them the money, but they never gave me a voicemail back. Maybe they still will, but I just didn't want to wait anymore, and I wanted to get this out to you. So you got to take my word for it, but we did have another winner. This whole thing hasn't exactly worked out as I thought it might in my head, but it's been a fun experiment. It just didn't really go anywhere. But it does seem like most of the people who won 500 bucks this month could actually use some good news and some extra funds, and that's a beautiful thing. Knowing how much some of these shows make that take ad revenue, maybe people should start requesting that they share a little of that for wasting your time. But anyway, last but not least is a peek at the meetup calendar. We know podcast listening is often a solo experience, but we sometimes come away wishing we had more people to talk to about these subjects, or at least a bigger network of people who get it for when the next crisis shows up. And that is why I pay to have HiresideMeetups.com maintained for you guys so anyone can take the opportunity to throw an event on the calendar there. And once I announce it in this portion of the show's wrap-up, local listeners will likely answer the call. And it looks like the next few I see are the Hireside London event happening tomorrow, or actually that's today, July 23rd, and then a Southwest Ohio Zoom meetup. If you want to get on the Zoom call to talk about where to meet up in Southwest Ohio, 
Our SVP for that, it's on July 28th. Then coming up in August, on the 2nd, there is a meetup in Richmond, Virginia. And August 5th, there's another one in Moundsville, West Virginia. And also on August 5th is another shot at the conspiracy theorizers hanging out at High Springs Brewing in High Springs, Florida. And we'll throw in August 6th, Huntsville, Alabama. And those are next on deck. So find the others and have some good times while making sure you know the right people in the bad times. But that's it for me. Let Richard know you had a good time with this. If you did, check out all of his offerings at richarddolanmembers.com. The Richard Dolan Show is one I rarely miss. Always worth checking out as well. But that's it for me. I've done my part. Your move, alien hybrid agenda implementers, covert cosmic colonizers, and keepers of the big secrets. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Waking up the masses is hard, silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now I'm not asleep, don't obey the elite, gotta be to the head. Now I start to wonder, now we're not the sheep that they bred us to be, gotta be. Set me straight. I encourage you to go when you see the saucers glow. One by one, we'll all end up awake. Enlightening the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now we're not asleep. Don't obey the elite. Got a beam to the head. Now we start to wonder. No, we're not the sheep that they. Starts to die, cabals hate it. 